This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. You're listening to NP All Lit. Poetry, prose, and music from beginning to end. A Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston. My name is Natalia Sylvester, and this is an excerpt from my young adult novel, Running. My father's campaign slogan is Rebuilding America. Before he initially announced his candidacy, my mother spent months trying to come up with it. She's written all his other campaign slogans, so it only made sense. But then my father insisted on hiring an ad agency. Sometimes he'd run their ideas by us. I was studying for midterms when he popped his head into my room and said, Integrity first. What do you think? And before I could answer, he shook his head and said, It doesn't say anything about my plan. We need to be less vague. Money was the one who suggested rebuilding America after he turned down countless others and spent thousands. The agency took the idea and ran with it. They created a logo with the America much bigger than the rebuilding, so it looks like one word is propping up the other. He showed it to me and my brother one night when he was actually home for dinner. What do you think, he said. Cool, it looks like Legos, Ricky said. It's very nice, but no work at the table, Manny said. Of course, and you know it's just a rough concept, he said. But the agency did a great job. Then he kissed my mother on the forehead. What would I do without you? No tengo idea, Mommy said, which is how she always responds when he asks. I like the slogan because it feels true to our roots. It reminds me of my great-grandfather, who died before my grandparents left Cuba, but who built the house my mother's father was born in with his own hands. When Abuelo arrived in Miami, he worked in construction for years until his back gave out. Then he went to trade school and became an electrician. He took pride in the kind of work that makes our country run, Papi always says. I first heard these stories in Papi's early speeches, but I know the details that no one else does. That Abuelo's electrician's toolkit, a thick canvas bag made up of tightly packed compartments, used to be navy blue. It's now faded, and it sits by his television, the color of the sky. It's the size of a shoebox and heavier than a gallon of milk. I know every bank, strip mall, car dealership, and home Abuelo helped build in Miami because he always points them out to me as we drive past. According to Papi, rebuilding America is both a vision and a plan. It's literal and figurative. It's about erecting buildings and bridges, roads and homes, and knowing that what makes them stand strong is the American spirit. I know that Abuelo's back has never stopped hurting him, even though he won't admit it. After Abuela died five years ago, he asked me to help him plant avocado trees in their garden in her memory. He took the seed from the last meal they shared, and with a couple of toothpicks, he submerged half of it in water until it sprouted. Months later, he dug a hole and planted it. Now there are three trees, each grown from the seed of the other. Abuelo speaks about them like they are a family. Abuela, mamá, hija. 
Rebuilding starts at home, at the dinner table, with the whole family. Once, Mami drove us to one of Papi's weekend rallies, and I asked him why he never talks about my abuelos on his side of the family during his campaign speeches, or at all, really. He said that just because he doesn't talk about his parents doesn't mean he doesn't think about them every day. He got quiet and started pinching his thumb like he was trying to make his fingerprint go away. I wondered if this was the end of the conversation, and then his phone rang. Trust me, Mommy whispered. We were at a red light, and she caught my eye in the rearview mirror. What happened to your abuelo and tío abuelo in Fidel's prisons? Your papi's only heard stories, of course. Your grandmother was pregnant with him when she got here. But even so, it stays with a person. Sometimes the things you don't remember are the things everyone else tends to forget. Maybe he heard us. Maybe he kept thinking about his father the whole time he discussed whatever very important topic he was talking about with his staff. When he hung up, Papi started searching for something in the center console. Some stories you just don't pass down, he said, never looking up at me. It's not worth the pain, Ijita. Then he popped a mint in and began rehearsing his speech in the car. Our country has been hurting, and now we must heal together. So this first poem is, um, as you can imagine, St. Michael as an archangel would be very busy in the world. There's a lot of famine and struggle and war and natural disasters. and um, But on this one occasion, you know, we have St. Michael first meeting the love, the future love of her life. And so this poem is called St. Michael Recalls How She Met Josephine. With autumn comes a sky forever powdered orange. It's a harvest party, and Michael first saw a woman, the color of gold, with a laugh that shook her hair down her back into a cascade of leaves. Later that evening they were introduced formally. Josephine, this is Archangel Michael. Michael, Josephine. Both smiled. And when St. Michael spoke of having visited the Dominican Republic, Josephine offered a few steps of merengue, leaving Michael no choice but to offer her elbow and lead Josephine to the dance floor. They left together that night, dancing. This one is called Giveaway. And because St. Michael and Josephine are both, both very busy, there are problems in trying to maintain a relationship. What I like about this form is the novel in verse. It tells, it reads like a novel. It, it makes a story go through. But because it's poem, their poems, it, the immediacy is there. And here at this point, uh, Josephine and Michael have broken up. St. Michael plugs the drip coffee pot, splashes milk into a yellow ceramic cup, its delicate gold handle, its filigree painted within the white valley, gifted by Josephine, who is not here. Her presence restored Michael, their shared espresso, laced a spuma and a glint of honey spooned into deep blue demitasses. Coffee, the spark of their lives, leaving its trace of bitter and sweet on the lips, something just theirs, something essential and loving. Coffee is the first thing to suffer. There's no sugar in the house, and the spoon is too heavy for this translucent cup. There's no love in this cup. Rafael left a message on the phone this morning, saying the fight for equality is exhausting. Punished from every side, he wonders how women survive at all. St. Michael laughs to herself when hearing this. Women die daily, she thinks. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? The world is carried within women. 
Women shed. Their hands and ears keep the life of others churning, and what breath is left in their bodies from this weight? Barren breaths. The air is gone. Women cannot hold their creations. If mothers fell into protest, the babies that never arrive would be the end of their people. Mother's caretaking given without question, the disappearance of it like a home struggling without a kitchen, without love, without the warmth blushing on the face of a coffee cup. St. Michael holds the heated vessel to her chest, lets the temperature run through her, her fingers intertwined around the gifted gold. Uh, so I will read actually the first poem out of the book. Uh, the first section is called Layers. Um, and the first book is actually a workshop I did with uh, Sandra Maria Esteves, uh, godmother of New York and poetry. Um, she did a workshop for Canto Mundo my second year attending. And it was like what your name can do. Yo, right? you're getting a PhD in, <laughs> in Latinx literature today if you're tuned in. <laughs> and, and it's the idea that, you know, where does your name come from? What other things hold your name? And how is your name translated or, or transcribed in, in other ways, right? So the first poem is how I was actually, like, named in that regard. Um, layers. One, Lupio. I asked my apa why this name. He laughed. The night you were born, your ama almost died. Toxemia in her veins and outside. The moon was a breeze. He asked about ama in broken English. The doctor told my father, pray. Only one of them will make it. The Ochilo once said, Apa sharpened glass pieces to shave. I asked, How did Apa not cut himself? Dio laughed, Muchacho, cada hombre se corta. Blood is nothing. Ama said that on my born day, she floated out of body in a red line, saw herself, heard a baby coo. Ama had to have a hysterectomy later. Perhaps age or I broke womb. The night my apa first crossed into Texas, he prayed. La Virgencita would guide him. He prayed to a breeze, a moon. I imagined him in prayer that night. I was born in a capilla. Querido Virgen, déjame los vivos. My body, my ama's blood, pooled in this name. I've wondered if I am the bestia he has asked for. I have not fought howled at the moon like he i haven't mixed mud sweat the way ama has but i have been lumbre every night In 1991, two Chicano scripts rolled through Hollywood that both centered on the formation and growth of La M, the biggest Mexican gang in California prison system. Since I was a high-profile Chicano who'd done time, both movies reached out to me. They knew my involvement would give them credibility. One was called American Me, directed by and starring Edward James Olmos. The other was Blood In and Blood Out. When I sat down to read American Me, I was excited. Olmos was just coming off 
an Oscar-nominated performance for Stan and Deliver. And now he was making a movie about a world I knew intimately. But my initial excitement quickly changed to dismay. Ten pages in, I knew there was going to be problems. In the opening scene, the mother of Montoya Santana, the character Edward James almost played in the film, is raped by sailors in the night of the Zoot Suit Riots, leaving her unsure who Montoya's real father is. That was straight up untrue. I knew it was untrue because Almost Character was based on a real guy in the Mexican Mafia named Rodolfo Cardena, a.k.a. Cheyenne. That wasn't the only problem. About 20 pages later came a shocking scene in which something violent happened to Santana in Juvenile Hall. Because of what happened later, I won't mention what it was. The whole thing was a fire, started in falsehood. I don't want to add fuel to. The truth is Cheyenne had never been abused in that way. And the fact that in the script, he immediately got revenge on his attacker didn't matter. I know this sounds harsh. But no person who ever been violated in that way could ever raise to the top of a prison gang. They could be killers and bad motherfuckers, but they never run a prison gang. It wouldn't happen. More important, it didn't. Another big concern I had was that any movie about the Mexican Mafia would have to be okayed by the OGs in prison before I signed on either project. I was definitely going to have to find out what the shot callers thought about it. And finally, somewhere before page 30 in the American Me script, I saw the writer call the gang La M. This is the actual name of the Mexican Mafia. And I had a feeling using it would be a big no-no for Joe Morgan, Robot, Donald Garcia, and Sailor Boy, some of the La M bigwigs I'd known since my days in Juvie, YTS, Dual Vocational Institute, and San Quentin. I knew just how serious and deadly La M was. I'd come up with the guys, but my Uncle Gilbert was the one who really knew the older shot callers. I was lucky, because Gilbert was so respected in the pen, I got that level of respect passed on to me. When I got to prison, Gilbert cautioned me about joining the mafia. He said that was a contract for life, and we shouldn't have any part of it. So I stayed away, but that didn't mean I wasn't friends with the guys. Sailor Boy and I starched our clothes together in YTS. Robot Salas was a good friend. Donald Garcia and I had gone back since junior high school. Gilbert was a good friend with all of them, especially Joe Pegleg Morgan, the current head of the Mexican Mafia. Even though 
we weren't members of the gang. Gilbert and I were classified as sympathizers, a designation that wasn't casual. Ramon Mundo Mendoza, a hitman for the Mexican Mafia, later commented on my friendship with the organization. Mundo said, Danny Trejo is blessed. He was friends with people on both sides of the line, but always got respect. I've done time with these men. They were serious vatos. Their world and their lives were being represented, or I suspected misrepresented in the film, and I couldn't imagine they'd be happy about it. It was four o'clock in the morning, and the full moon was shining through Berta's bedroom window. Her beloved Colonia Narvarte, which was usually a cacophony of sounds, the street sweepers, the knife sharpener's panpipe, the silver, almost church bell sound of the garbage truck, the barking street mutts of all shapes and sizes. Instead, it was eerily silent. Not even the birds she fed regularly were up. Berta got out of bed and looked at the clothes she had laid out the night before. This would be the outfit she would travel in as she said goodbye to her birthplace. It had to be perfect and memorable. Berta wanted people to see her, just like when she went to parties. She wanted them to see the arrival of this new American. She wanted people to do a double-take when she walked by, and not because of the four children she would be bringing with her. In front of her lay a white satin button-down shirt and a black velvet skirt and the off-white lace petticoat slip that went underneath. She studied her pearl-drop earrings and opaque pearl choker. Then her eyes were drawn to the floor, where her pair of black patent leather slingbacks were at the ready. She smiled to herself. Berta, my mother, was not worried about leaving her country behind. For six months, she'd been preparing and processing— she knew my father, Raúl, was struggling to comprehend the enormity of his impending new American citizenship, something that he was required to commit to as part of his new job. But Berta knew Mexico would always be her home, no matter what. She would always have her green Mexican passport and an American green card. For her, there was no contradiction. After staring at her clothes in a daze, the moon now beginning to set, and the light blue of morning beginning to brighten over the volcano, El Popocatépetl, Berta realized she wasn't just smiling. She felt ecstatic. For a full month, the butterflies that were usually a sign of a baby kicking in her belly were now in her tummy because of the thrill of this upcoming adventure, and it was finally here. Still, a small part of her felt ashamed. She was having a hard time understanding exactly why she felt so happy about leaving everything she knew behind. Why was this so much easier for her than it had been for Raúl? Quiero ser más libre. No quiero que nadie me controle, ni mi mamá, ni mi papá, ni mis hermanos. Yo quiero ser yo. Amo a Raúl y él me ama como soy. Quiero ver el mundo y criar a mis hijos a ser independientes. Quiero ser una mujer entera. Y no sé si lo puedo lograr aquí en México. My mother said, I want to be freer. I don't want anyone to control me. 
not my mother, my father, or my brothers and sisters. I want to be me. I love my husband, Raul, and he loves me as I am. I want to see the world and raise my children to be independent. I want to be a complete woman. And I don't know if I can do that here in Mexico. One by one, she woke up her children, starting with the oldest, Bertelena, who was about to turn seven. Berta helped her get dressed, all sleepy like a rag doll. But soon she perked up and assumed her role as her mother's helper. She combed her thick, jet black hair and added a pink barrette. She pulled her white button-down sweater over the black dress Manuela, her abuelita, had made special for her just for this trip, and then she put on her frilly white socks and white leather shoes. My mom took care of me, dressing me in an off-white baby dress she had sewn with a delicate crochet hem she'd designed herself. I was a crawler, so mom carried me everywhere that morning, as she did every day. Even as she supervised my two brothers and sister, she never let me go. Mommy called me her chicle, her gum, because I was always stuck to her. I was her little baby girl, the last one she would have, because, unlike my siblings, I was not planned or expected. There would be no more babies, so Berta doted on me. Every minute. With my brothers and sister, everything had been a bit utilitarian. But with me, she savored every moment. She wanted to raise me in slow motion, making every memory with her final baby last as long as possible. Inheritance My body holds pockets full of other bodies, secreted cells of my grandparents, inside my parents, nested in an infinity of theirs. I am made of those sweat-filled sheets of sorrow, a clothesline of flinching blouses, waiting for that slap and backbeat to dry. My mother hiding under the house of my body. My body the leather belt from which she is hiding. My organs of wrist that ring into prayer of tied up and drowning. But also the pulp of tomato sap running down my mother's neck on the ride back from a farm face up to sun, pressed up against cousins in the back of a pickup, and across town my father's body, his boy body, running with all the joy he can muster to every single dirt base, and he can turn as brown as his body will let him, all the sun's blessing. My birthright, my body's water-filled mouth, my great-uncle, choking on grass and oil drip in Buffalo Bayou, as it swallowed up his childhood. That endless body of water, always a fitful of pump and pin, the giving a life, the taking away of. In the Maya woman, 
my greater grandmother. She is folded here near the heart, that beast of a muscle made of slurs and songs. Contreras, Moreno, Hernandez, Aguirre, cheek to jowl with Bantu slave, dropped in a world of wild, squeezed into a fist. The Spanish of my body butchers the trees until the landscape is bald. And yet my body remembers both the black matter trees, those rows of empty in a race, the bruise-shaped branches that drip and drip and drip and drip, but also the sound of that click in a home run, the sound of running feet, and the fullness of my mom's hunger satisfied. All this, a long story that spells my name, marked with a language to survive. My body stops here. Having a body is like riding a bus with unreliable air conditioning in the middle of the summer in Houston, where I need to make two transfers to get to my destination. Some buses are like hotels, plush seats, icy air that make you forget the open oven of a city outside, quiet and comfortable passengers. You could live there and want everyone you know to live there too. But my bus is the kind where everyone is pushed up against each other, pinned, sweating, waiting desperately to hold a handout to pull the string that announces, this is my stop. It's tiny bell sound so that some driver, a stranger, who holds all this power of motion, can open those blessed doors. Those doors creak open, but I'm not ready, not yet, to get off. It's so uncomfortable, but I'm here sharing a view with citizens of this city, the moss-heavy oaks along the bayous, the ramshackle houses with their noses pointed up next to mansion neighbors white-knuckled in wealth and holding their ground on raised foundation, the poor houses with flowers poking out next to broken shutters, like a person dressed in rags but tucking in her shirt and pulling up her socks to find some dignity. Streets and streets of grandma and grandpa houses that can let out their breath and be at home, kick their feet up, and just be with the elote sellers, the pupusa trucks, the soul food, and the barbecue joints next to gas stations and quinceanera dressmaker shops, the braids and weaves places, the barbers, the man dressed in the uniform of a busser, white shirt, black pants, riding a child's pink bike, the mama walking her children across the street with a grocery cart, the older children hanging to the sides, the raspa stands, Thai massage parlors, Vietnamese street signs and rows of Chinese restaurants and healers, and then more rows of sari fabric stores, halal markets, Indian buffets. There is so much to see, even in this little view from the bus, pressed up against other bodies, 
their own small views, some I know, much smaller than mine. Leaving would be a shame, getting off on my own volition. I'd miss it, this view. There are no more seats, that's true, and everybody's legs fill each pothole, each road ignored for decades, the full of rocks. What use is it to think about another ride? My body sits here, lingers, and looks out. Photograph of Frida Kahlo, Sin Aderezos, 1946, by Antonio Kahlo. After surgery, her body weighted against a wooden chair, eyes mid blink, her face curtained by a dark mass of hair. Frida lets out curls of smoke from the left hand cigarette, her body shrinking back. Into its black pajamas, her hair not bound up by braids or Diego. There is no room for anything else but pain, which carries inside it other pain, and those pains brothers, sisters, their spouses, lovers, and children on their knees crawling to the church of her body, its camino largo. The steel bar through the hip and uterus of it, the street car sitting on the column of the spine of it. Pain is different people sitting by the bedside, but wringing its hands just the same, figuring out what to take of the body this time, what language it can speak. Polio to still a bit of leg, the abortion a toe, and the body's fetus. A hand to infect, a leg to gangrene and fell. Behind her, inside the house, are dahlias, bougainvilleas, gardenias, which she will paint so they will not die. Those blooms waiting to be laurelled on the head, held up by its long brown braid tightly laced. In this, she will hold up cielito lindo, its smuggled. Ribbons of little sky, folded up in canta no llores, pin them to her crown. Bueno, no, voy a leer algo que se llama Tenme. Ah, y dice así: Tenme, llévame en canoa a un mundo único. Acaríciame las ganas de no tenerte. Suelta mi silueta y escóndete en mi sombra. Tenme, tenme, tenme. Soy una cuando tú me alcanzas y me pierdo en mi femina diosa, que es diosa y esclava de tu efímero cuerpo. Clávame tu espada en los recovecos de mi infierno y ven conmigo, acércate, mata uno a uno mis demonios, quédate amor aquí en mi pecho desbordado de esos sueños caducos de ayahuasca, de bilis, de pecado santo y cuadrero. Man, 
and I don't want to spend too much time breaking it down, but that that's awesome because we want to get to more poems. But it t- touched on a lot <laughs> what you're saying too. Uh, it could be political. Yes. It sounds erotic. Sounds How like you can mix people. that? <laughs> I'm going to resist talking more about it because you just got to flow. Just flow. Just go. More poems. Este, este se llama Cenizas y habla también un poco de la relación que tenemos con Estados Unidos, pero también de una manera erótica. Y cómo nos podemos divorciar de esto. Y dice así. Te devuelvo mi sonrisa sumisa, tu lengua descalza. Te devuelvo todo lo que nunca tuve. El sol congelado en mi cintura, las mm, mariposas hechas polvo, tus labios conquistadores de mi piel colonizada, la fogata de una tarde que nunca ocurrió, la mañana exiliada sin aspiraciones. Te regalo desbordados de prejuicios, los cajones y veintiún alacenas desnuda, un desayuno a las seis de la tarde y el murmullo del fuego en tu reloj. Incinero, el recuerdo colgado en la tibia sala de tu ausencia presente y sin rastros de esperma, tres almohadones perfectamente colocados en las caderas del viejo San Juan. Te devuelvo las cenizas junto con una carta del tío Sam. So I call this Frontera Caribeña, Caribbean Border. Con los ojos calladitos y la Biblia entre las piernas, me acerqué a la frontera, a esa línea en brasas que perpetua el mar y el cielo, a esa distancia efímera entre la arena y el viento, arrastrando el morir soñando que casi bebo cuando atientas vivo. Así llegamos a bailar con la inocencia descalza y la sonrisa pasmada de colores hediondos y ratos comprados, con promesas al borde de pechos colgantes, con la fe enterita de lagañas, ahogando nombres en números que tiritan en rostros dos por cuatro, así llegamos, con la ropa enredada en pedazos de madera y el despojo que arde en un rey caribe tuerto. Confesiones. Antes de ti ya había algo, imagino. Antes de ti las personas hablaban de amor, de vida y de compañía. Antes de ti no había nada malo, nada me espantaba o daba miedo, pero contigo. Haz un vuelo dentro de un mar sin miedos. Contigo además se me alargan las venas, se extienden, le añades días a mi vida. Antes de ti todo estaba bien, caminaba sin sendero, volando, me conocía a mí misma, pero contigo es que levanto puentes donde pensaba que había muros, y es que tú, tú me vibras, le añades memoria a mi programa y sentido a mis sentidos, me agarras la mano y la sueltas cuando la necesito, cuando precisamos, por eso, cuando preguntas cómo era antes, ya no lo sé. So this is Summer Camp is Cancelled, and I'm going to read an excerpt from Chapter 1. Melody Martinez is the prettiest girl in the whole world. I know there are tons of girls in the world, but I don't care. Nobody is prettier than her. Nobody. Nobody on the face of the earth. Even the earth's face is not as pretty as her. You know, if the earth somehow had a face. There are so many things I like about her. 
I like her hair, her nose, her mouth, her ears, the way she chews her food at lunch. I like how nice she is to everyone she meets. I like her patience. I like how she always does her homework early. And I like the way she raises her little whiteboard when she knows the answer to the question the teacher asked. Oh, yeah. I guess I should mention she's deaf. Everybody does. She's the deaf girl. That's what most kids call her, but I don't, and neither do my best friends Ted and Javier. Melody, the deaf girl? The fact that she's deaf must be super important to other people, but not to me. She's been deaf for years, ever since we were in pre-K. Back then, her hearing was perfect. Then, she could only hear big noises, like a thunderclap, a door slamming, or stomping feet. One day, she couldn't hear at all. She had meningitis, and it spread pretty fast. Her parents took her to a hospital in Austin, and she was treated, but the doctor swore she would never hear again. When she came back to school, I freaked out when she didn't say good morning to me. I said good morning to her every day, and she would say it back. I thought I had done something mean to her, but I couldn't remember what it was. I said good morning again. She didn't turn around. I threw myself on the floor, kicking my legs in the air and crying, and she still didn't turn around. Mom sat me down on a stool and said, Pero Jesucristo, Linden, calm yourself. You're a big boy. But she won't talk to me, I said. Chiquito, she's deaf. That means she can't hear like me and you. Calm down, you're going to have a pee-pee accident if you don't. I didn't know Melody couldn't hear me. That happened seven years ago, and I still hate myself for flipping out the way I did. Edward James almost had arranged a meeting to discuss the script. We were to meet at Jerry's famous deli in Encino. Edward was bringing his agent, and I brought Eddie Bunker. I knew if anyone could suss out truth from bullshit, it would be Eddie Bunker. We were sitting in a booth waiting for them to arrive when Eddie glanced up and said, They're here. I turned around and saw Edward in full cholo wear. He was in a county blue shirt buttoned up at the top and flying open on the bottom. He wore county blue pants. The only thing he was missing was a hairnet. This was a business meeting. Eddie and I were dressed like casual businessmen. Edward greeted me with an, Orale se, que onda? I was confused, obviously not by the greeting, but by his appearance. Edward was an actor, a great actor. He'd never been part of a gang, and he'd certainly never done time in prison. But here he was, playing like he was an OG from the streets. I figured he was most likely employing some kind of method approach to the role he would be playing in the film. I love actors, and I love movies. Replaying movies in my head helped me survive the time I was in the hole in Folsom and Soledad. But I know the difference between real life and make-believe. Actors are incredible at making people believe that they are divorced dads or a woman with a secret or a soldier killing Nazis or a boxer Two fights passed when they should have hung up their gloves, but they are not those things. I don't think there's ever been a mobster 
who can play a better mobster than Ray Liotta or Robert De Niro or Al Pacino. That's an actor's job. But their role extends only as far as make-believe allows. Robert De Niro never actually beaten a man to death. And even though Edward James almost played a zoot suitor, he wasn't one. My father was. He was a veterano zoot suit gangster from 38th Street, the gang at the center of the controversial Sleepy Lagoon murder case, the focus of the movie Edward starred in called Zoot Suit. My mom was from Ford Maravilla, the same gang that Joe Morgan came up in in the late 30s. I had too many personal connections to the liberties Edward was taking with the story for any of it to sit well with me. But honestly, my biggest problem probably had as much to do with my insecurities as with what Edward James Almost was doing. Him dressing up as a cholo made me question whether Edward, an incredible actor, a lifelong devotee to the craft, wanted to bond with me not as a fellow artist, but as a gangster of some sort. Did he look at me and see the person I'd been in my past life? A life I'd worked so hard to put in my rearview mirror? It wasn't the first time I'd experienced this dynamic. It was something I was overly sensitive about, but I felt like certain Latinos in Hollywood viewed me as a gangster, not a peer. To them, I was a circus curio from the hood, a world they certainly recognized but never inhabited. The meeting was off to a confusing start. We ordered sandwiches and matzo ball soup and started talking about the film. Edward got straight to the point and asked if I was interested in working on this project. Eddie Bunker immediately raised one of our chief concerns. He said, Edward, did you talk to Joe about this film? He was referring to Joe Morgan. Almo said, I met with Joe. He gave the okay. Eddie Bunker was a lifelong friend of Joe Morgan's. Immediate red flag. As soon as Eddie Bunker asked Edward the question, I could sense his demeanor shift. If prison had taught me anything, it taught me when someone was backing up. There seemed to be a hint of deflection and deception in almost his answer. I glanced at Eddie Bunker and saw that he shared my doubt. I got down to business. Look, Edward, the problem is there are things in this script that aren't true. I told him some of my concerns. Edward said, I know, but it makes more theatrical sense for the piece. I was hoping he'd say, I know, and we're going to address that, or we're going to figure out a way to tell our story without twisting the truth of real people. But he didn't. He was married to the idea that the fictional art of the script was more important than letting truth get in the way of a good story. This might be true in the office of Hollywood producers, but it wasn't in the world I knew. I couldn't believe 
how casual he was about details that were so critical. I offered yet another point of contention. Eddie, Cheyenne was killed by the Nuestra Familia. He wasn't killed by his own gang. That was huge. The day Cheyenne died, 1972, he knew there was a hit on him. So did the guards. They offered him the option of staying in his cell in Palm Hall at the Chino Reception Center. Instead, Cheyenne walked out on the tier and was stabbed over 50 times by the Nuestra Familia gang. He is remembered by La M as being a martyr, not someone who would be killed by his own brothers. Edward said that detail was theatrical too. Jesus, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Still tried to be diplomatic. I like Edward James almost and had deep respect for what he meant as an actor to the Hispanic community. I made a statement couched in a joke. Edward, the people you're talking about are not theatrical people. Eddie Bunker and I shared a dark laugh at that one. From their reaction, I got a sense that Edward James almost and his agent didn't like the way the meeting was going. I don't know what they were hoping for. I can't imagine they didn't know there were going to be issues. Maybe they were praying I wouldn't question the script and would just be happy to be considered for an acting job like a regular Joe Schmo actor at a meeting campaigning for a part. I was full of unanswered questions. The biggest was what Laeme Bigwigs really thought about all of this. All the talk of theatricality and interesting character arcs set my mind racing. Hollywood has always told stories of gangsters, some loosely based on their lives, others taken straight from court transcripts. But I had never found myself so squarely in the intersection of fiction and reality. Looking back, I honestly believe Edward James almost utter brilliance and mastery in the world of acting and film blinded him to some degree to the deadly seriousness of the prison politics and how much sway it carries on the streets, even if, in a deeply ironic way, it was the central theme of the script he was directing. There's no poetic license when you're pissing off the wrong people. A lot of it was just common sense. I would rather have a rabid dog for a friend than an enemy. Eddie Bunker leaned in from his position as Captain Clerk in San Quentin. There was no one in the world who knew the ramifications of prison politics as well as Eddie Bunker. He said to almost, Edward, are you sure about all this? Eddie Bunker was trying to make almost see where this whole thing could go sideways, but almost was clearly determined to make this version of the film. We finished our meal and agreed to meet almost at his office the next day to continue discussing the project. I was hoping he would sleep on some of the issues we raised and rethink some of the things, but my gut told me he was set 
on the story he wanted to tell. The next day I got my answer. When I stepped into Edward's office, I found him decked out in the cholo wear again. Edward wasn't the only one who slept on the issues we covered the day before. After leaving Jerry's Deli, I struggled to identify what really bothered me so much about his costume. I knew my conflict was deeply rooted in all the time I had spent as part of gangs or in prison. While I appreciate his dedication to portraying a life he didn't live or even know, that's what actors do. What bothered me lay in the heart of my own feelings of what being a cholo meant. When you take the dress and the code of a cholo or a crypt or a blood or a Mexican mafia member or an Aryan Brotherhood for that matter, you become something that is no longer Mexican or black or white. When it comes to gang wear, how you are dressed is not merely a costume, it's a declaration that you are committed to a life of crime for which you are willing to sacrifice the well-being of those around you, your moms, dads, wives, sisters, brothers, children's, friends, anyone. To me, a real Mexican, white and black, were the kind of men who worked hard and took their kids to Little League practice after working hard all day. Perhaps I was overreaching after all. I was already interested in taking the part of Geronimo in Blood In, Blood Out, another prison gang movie where we were all decked out as cholos. But these were the feelings I was feeling for better or for worse. I guess you could also argue that I myself was playing by gang rules by arguing against the liberties almost took with the script. But the untruth made me deeply uncomfortable. I watched plenty of movies about organized crime, but I never knew the players personally before, and I knew too much to keep my mouth shut. I didn't want to play the middleman, but I smelt danger. Edward said that he wanted me to think about the part of Pedro Santana, Montoya Santana's father, who disapproved of his lifestyle. I looked at the part and immediately wasn't interested. I told him I would think about it. I didn't tell Edward I wasn't interested in the part of Pedro Santana because it reminded me too much of my father. I didn't bring up the controversial aspects of the script again. I didn't have to dig any further into those complicated corners because Edward made the decision easy. What totally killed American me, for me, was when Edward told me that any actor considering working on Blood In, Blood Out would not be a part of American me. That was the final blow. There were so few parts in Hollywood for Chicano actors as it is. I thought it was unfair that when two projects that would employ a ton of my Chicano brothers would finally come along, one of the movies would deny entrance to the other, especially coming from someone who was involved so deeply in Chicanismo.
We left it with me telling Edward I would have to run it by my agent. But one thing I didn't mention was that right before I went to the meeting, my cousin Sal had called me from L.A. County Jail. When I picked up the phone, Sal said, Danny, Joe Morgan wants to call you. They were both in high power, a section of L.A. County for high-profile or especially dangerous prisoners. Sal sounded concerned. Are you all right? We both knew a phone call from Joe could be very, very bad news. I'm good, Sal. How you doing? You know how it is. Just fighting my case. Just call me if you need anything, okay? Yeah, Joe is going to call you at 5 at Bunker's house. Tomorrow? No, today. I knew what he wanted to talk to me about had to be serious business. By calling me at Eddie's, it was clear Joe didn't want to put a red light on me by calling my house. Tell him I'll be there. Be good, Holmes. You know it, Holmes. He hung up. Of course, Big Joe knew about the movie, and of course, he already knew I'd met Edward James almost the day before. From his cell in San Quentin, Chino, or L.A. County, very little went down in the world that Big Joe didn't know. And this upcoming phone call confirmed my suspicion. Joe wasn't happy about the film. Joe Morgan was the son of an Irish-American father and a Croatian mother. But he grew up in Mexican neighborhoods. He was as hard as they come. He joined the Maravilla gang when he was a kid and quickly rose through the ranks. Joe had lost his leg from a gun blast and got the nickname Peg Leg. The loss of his leg didn't stop him. Joe was still one of the best handball players I'd ever seen. He spoke Spanish perfectly and had an incredible presence. When you got near his cell, the monocules in the air got heavy. Joe only talked to people if they were his best friend or if he wanted them dead. I knew Joe didn't want me dead, but he wanted something from me. That afternoon, I headed over to Bunker's. He already put on pot of coffee. Eddie made the best coffee in the world. At 5 p.m., on the button, the phone rang. Eddie answered, What's up, Big Joe? You good? Yeah. He listened a bit. Yeah, he's right here. And handed me the phone. I hopped on the line. Danny, ¿qué pasó? I'm good, Holmes. He said, I hear you're going up for that movie, American Me. I'm up for both of them. Blood in, blood out, too. He got straight to the point. Which one are you going to do? I said, come on, Joe. I'm going to do blood in, blood out, Holmes. He was happy. He said, good, good. That's the cute one. We both laughed. Then he said, La Onda, stretching out the word. La Onda was the name of the fictional Mexican gang in blood in, blood out. I always laughed thinking about Joe Morgan calling blood in, blood out a movie about a gang of Stone Cold Killers, the cute one. Va a caer un de pedo. 
There's going to be a lot of problems with that other movie, Joe added. I figured. He talked about almost directly. That is running around saying he met with me and Chino and got my approval. Saw bullshit. I refuse to see him. There's a lot of bullshit in that script. That's what I tried to tell Eddie. He said, you know, Danny, you could do that other movie. He was saying he wouldn't hold it against me if I did American Me. I said, no, Joe, I got too much respect. Gracias, Holmes. Vato's got enough respect for you that you get away with it. Thanks, Joe. Then I asked him, hey, Joe, what about the crew and the other actors? He laid any concern I had to rest. The crew and the actors are just workers, Holmes. They're just getting a paycheck. Orale, Holmes. That was a load off my mind. I knew many of the actors involved in American Me, and I didn't want them to have any trouble. Joe said, be good, Danny. Good checking in with you, and hung up. This is Tony Diaz. I want to thank Roxana Guzman, who is our producer for our social platform broadcast. Also, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes our show and audio for KPFT 90.1 FM. Mark Andre Pignon is our graphics designer. Ramirez Ortiz is in charge of our search engine optimization. Uh, Leticia Lopez helps us with music. And of course, you, dear listeners, are always supporting us. Thanks a lot, and we look forward to seeing you at the arts. <laughs>